But anywhere in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32 through 35, the fig tree sign, when the, when the Jews became a nation, folks, that was the fig tree sign. That was a seminal moment in Bible prophecy. We're going to learn about that today. So if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. And as you know, we honor God's Word by standing when we read it. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This is the word of God. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for this time together to study your word. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you open each one of our hearts and minds to receive the word that you have for each one of us today. Thank you for this time together, the corporate gathering of the people of God. It's precious, Lord, in your sight. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. There is a king coming, a king coming that will never be displaced again. All these other world kingdoms might rise up and fall, but the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, our king will reign forever and ever. Where we've been, it's Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life, and he gives the Olivet Discourse, the last sermon, the fifth sermon in the book of Matthew. And then he tells us what's the sign of the end. The disciples want to know, show us the sign of your coming. What's the end of the age, Jesus? And then he proceeds to tell them. And if you recall, the beginning of these things, it starts with deception, and then it goes into the, into the uh, uh, tribulation judgments, the, the, the four horsemen on the apocalypse, and that sort of thing will come down the, down the pike. He tells us that the beginning of this tribulation is the beginning of sorrows. And we learn that the beginning of sorrows, 1.5 billion people die, and it's the beginning of sorrows. He doesn't call it the great tribulation, until the last half of the tribulation. Why is that? When another 1.5 billion will die in the trumpet judgments and then the last, in the last half of the tribulation, and then even more will die after that. He calls it the great tribulation because the focus is on the Jewish people. If he does not return, lest these days be cut short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, he's coming back to save the nation of Israel from total obliteration. If Jesus did not come back, everyone would die on the face of the earth. He comes on a rescue mission. Now, remember this. Satan is in the deceiving business. And he started his business right out of the chute. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, you are very familiar with this. At least most folks are. Listen to this. Now, the serpent, or Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, which is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it. Now, she was the first legalist. She adds touching to this thing, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Deception, deception, doubt, doubt, deception. For God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and, oh, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, you know what the deceiver does. He plants doubt over and over. Doubt what God says. Doubt what God says. Don't trust what God says. 
And by the way, he wants the whole world to believe that Christianity is one big fairy tale, that Christianity is for the uninformed, for the non-intellectual, for those who aren't quite right in their minds. That's who the, that's the ones that gravitate to Christianity. That is not so. The, his deception is this, you shall surely die. God is withholding something good from you, Eve. He's, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want you to enjoy your life. I want to say this to you. Remember what the thief comes to do. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And remember the contrast with, with, is with what Jesus does. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly in John 10.10. 10. As we grow closer to the end, deception will be off the charts. Now, I have a question for you, and you are good Bible students. You should be able to answer this question. Why are people deceived more so as we get closer to the end? Why are they deceived? And I'll tell you the answer since this isn't a Sunday school class and you can't answer. <laughs> people do not know the Word of God or choose to listen to the Word of God. You know this answer. And you, and you also know this. The church that will dominate as we get closer to the end is that seventh church in the book of Revelation, the Laodicean church. Now, the Laodicean church is the progressive church at the end of the age who have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Watch what it says in Revelation 3, 15 through 17. Jesus says to this church, this end-time church, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Pretty strong words. This last end-time church makes Jesus sick. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy in need of nothing, and do you not know that actually, though you're great and wonderful in your own eyes, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Folks, deception is easy when people are devoid of the Word of God. And you know that in the church today, the vast majority of the church, the Bible has been taken out in place of programs and all kinds of other things that take its place. The biblically illiterate are fodder for false teachers and deception. And by the way, cults prey on the biblically illiterate. Prey on the biblically illiterate. Now, your protection, your protection from deception is know the word. Know the word. Now, for you to know the word, what must you do? Read the word. <laughs> and you need to read the word daily. Get your daily Word vitamins. You take your vitamins. You don't miss your breakfast or your lunch or your dinner or your desserts. You take in the word every day. It's imperative. Then Jesus goes on to describe the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The tribulation starts with deception, and that is the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist or his system for sure, a good guy peacemaker who is a deceiver of deceivers. And I have the picture of the four horsemen of the apocalypse for the umpteenth time that we've gone through this. The rider on the white horse, of course, is the Antichrist. The rider on the red horse is war, which happens shortly after the, when the sealed judgments get implemented. And then famine and pestilence and disease. And the chlorophyll-colored horse or the pale-colored horse, the last thing that happens is death from all these other things that are happening. And then he goes on to say that one-fourth of the planet will be killed, will die during this first part of the tribulation. Again, the last half of the tribulation has to do with the Jews, and that's why it's called the Great Tribulation. 
Antichrist at the beginning is just killing people, but he's sparing the Jewish people. He's not focusing on them. The wrath of Antichrist comes at the last half of the tribulation when he tries to eliminate every Jew on earth. Every Jew on earth. That's the wrath of the Antichrist. Remember, we're in the 70th week of Daniel when we talk about the tribulation. Now, you need a little background on that. I don't have time to give you that today. But remember, that 70th week of Daniel is 490 years. That's week years that were given for the nation of Israel, for Jerusalem and, and the people of God, the Jewish people. Time stopped for the Jewish people when they rejected Messiah. It stopped at the 483-year point. We've had many overhead pictures of this and gone through it many times. The last seven years, or the last week is the last seven years. That's the tribulation period, that entire time when Jesus is pouring out his wrath on earth, he's opening the seals, and he's taking back planet earth. That last part is the great tribulation. Now, last week we saw what Jesus' return would be like. And remember, I had the slide that went up. It's not a double super secret. When Jesus comes back, there's dramatic things that happen. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There'll be no mistaking when Jesus comes back. It's not going to be like the rapture where it's, it's an instant. The secret rapture, is, as people sometimes call it, it's, it's not going to be that way. It's going to, you're going to know that the, you're in the tribulation. These things are heading for his return. And when he does return, it's going to be spectacular. As lightning flashes from the east to the west, you will see it, his return coming. Remember, he left in the clouds. He comes back in the clouds. Jesus' return will be an all-out wrath to those who are opposed to him. You must understand that. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first casualties when he comes back. They are thrown into the lake of fire, and they're there a thousand years later when Satan joins them. He then deals with the earth dwellers, and with a word, he speaks a word, and the earth dwellers are taken care of. This is found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Excuse me, Matthew verse 19, chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. It says this. You can actually go there and make sure I'm reading the right thing to you. <laughs> now, I saw heaven open. This is John. He sees heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This white horse is Messiah. He who sat on it was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, diadems, not Stephanos, king's crowns, not victor's crowns. He had a name written that no one knew, no one knew, except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, by the way, that's you, coming back, angels and you, we're coming back with Jesus, on white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he will strike the nations. He speaks and it's victory. They fall like pickup sticks. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. This is Jesus. This is gentle Jesus. He's coming back righteous, wrathful, taking back planet earth. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There'll be no one mistaken who's in charge of this world when Jesus comes back. It's not going to be Putin 
fighting with the guy in North Korea who's the most powerful, or China, you will know that the king has come. You will know that the king has come. And, and remember, again, it's, it's the false prophet and the Antichrist immediately dealt with, earth dwellers dealt with, Satan is dealt with, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, one angel, I think this must be humiliating, humiliating to Satan, who's the most powerful, he was the anointed cherub, and, and Jesus sends one messenger angel to him, a lower level angel, and takes him, binds him, throws him into the pit for a thousand years. And by the way, we learned in Zechariah that the demonic realm also joins him. So there's no demonic influence in the millennial reign of Christ. This week, Jesus is going to give a parable of the fig tree, the fig tree sign. Stanley Toussaint in his work, Behold the King, puts this time this way. Thus far in the discourse, the Olivet Discourse, the king has warned the disciples not to be deceived concerning the end times. And might I say, you, you also. Do not be deceived at what's happening as our world changes right before our eyes. Do not be deceived. There will be wars and rumors of wars and destruction of Jerusalem with its temple. That happened. But that is not the end. The end is indicated by certain definite signs. World war, famines, earthquakes, universal social disturbances always have happened. How about this? The worldwide proclamation of the gospel will not happen until the tribulation period with 144,000, the two witnesses, and the angel that goes about giving the gospel to the whole world. That doesn't happen until then. How about the appearance of the abomination of desolation in the holy place? The Son of Man will then come to establish His universal kingdom. His appearance will be of such a supernatural character that no one, no one will doubt who it is that has come. On the basis of these facts, the king admonishes his disciples by means of a series of parables. This is the parable of the fig tree. You'll see the illustration from day, the days of Noah coming up and then the parable of the ten virgins. Those are future teachings. This is what's coming. Jesus will speak in parables. Now, the fig tree, why a fig tree? Well, verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, why not a birch tree? Why not a pear tree? Why not a cherry tree? Well, I believe the fig tree, at least in the New Testament, is a representation of the nation of Israel. It doesn't say specific in this text that, but I think we can extrapolate from Scripture that the fig tree is a, is a representation of Israel and the privileges that, that the Israel had as the chosen people. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 18 through 20, Jesus curses the fig tree, the symbol of Israel. And I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus is walking along and, and he expected to have some fruit on this tree. Now, the fig tree, you, if you remember, when we did our teaching there, it bears fruit before the leaves come out. Well, on that fig tree, it was full of leaves with no fruit. Jesus cursed the fig tree, the symbol of Israel. He cursed Israel because Israel was not fulfilling its mandate. It was contaminated by the gods of the world. It was worshiping the gods of the world. And it became like the rest of the world. And he cursed them, especially when they rejected him. They rejected the evidence of who he was. Now, over the history of Israel, they have rejected Jesus multiple times. And the consequence has been awful for the nation of Israel. In 722 B.C., 
the Assyrians came and captured the ten northern tribes. In 586 B.C., Babylon comes and takes Judah. 136 years later, they didn't learn from Assyrian captivity, the ten northern tribes, and they, they worship the idols, and they go into captivity. And then we have, uh, in 70 A.D., Rome comes and destroys Jerusalem, and then the diaspora occurs again where they're spread throughout the world. And in this spreading throughout the world, the Jewish people don't have a homeland. The places that they're spread to, they're generally not liked. Not liked. They're, they've experienced the curses of God. Now, there's a guy named Clarence Larkin. This guy lived from 1850 to 1924. This guy believed Bible prophecy. Now, watch what he says. He's talking about the fig tree and the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard and of the fig tree was God. He came in the person of his son, Jesus. And for three years of Jesus' ministry, he sought for fruit from the Jewish nation. Now, they rejected him. All the things that Messiah would do, all the miracles that Messiah would do, all the things that the Old Testament prophets prophesied, Jesus demonstrated, Jesus did, but they rejected him. The, the Jews, they, they, he found no fruit in the Jewish nation. He therefore decided to cut down the tree, that is, remove the nation from the vineyard, from its homeland. They were dispersed. But while the fig tree was cut down and cast out, its root was not destroyed. The axe was only laid at the root of the tree. The root itself was not killed. The nation was not killed totally or removed from the soil. It is clear from the parable of the fig tree that a new tree will spring from the, this root, that is, the nation of Israel will be revived. This guy died in 1924, and he believed that this would happen. He did not live to see it. The fig tree, he goes on to say, the fig tree sign that Christ's return means that Christ's return is not far away. He did not live to see that sign. You have. You have. Think about this. Israel was dispersed for over 2,000 years. No homeland, generally despised by the nations they lived in. There is a miracle embedded in this dispersion. And when you think about this dispersion, think God. Think God. Only God could do this. It's one of the, it's one of the things that gives credence to God being real. I've spoken to several atheists in discussing you know, why I believe that, that God is real. And they cannot answer this question because this, what I'm going to give you is the only th time this has happened on earth. Without a homeland, the Jewish people kept their identity, their religion, and their ethnicity intact. Now hear this. No, no, zero, no other nation in the history of the world has done this. Every nation that has been conquered, has been taken into captivity by another nation, has become assimilated into that, that nation within two generations. They, they become that nation. They take on the characteristics of that nation, not the Jewish people. They have maintained their identity for 2,000 years. Impossible without God. God did this. The fig tree put forth its leaves, folks, May 14, 1948. The nation state of Israel was reestablished in their own land, just like God said would happen. The fig tree sign means Messiah is near. Verse 33 and 34, when the fig tree sign happens, Christ's return is near. Verse 33, so you also, disciples and everyone who reads this, so you also, when you see all these things, 
know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation that sees all these things will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, again, the miracle happened May 14th, 1948. That started the countdown, started the countdown. Now, hear the prophet Isaiah on this regarding this miracle. Isaiah 66, 8. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? The implication is no, it can't happen. The scripture says the nation will be regathered in unbelief, and they were regathered in unbelief in 1948. And if you don't know this, you're going to know it now. I've mentioned it several times, but the nation of Israel is very progressive. When I say progressive, they embrace things that God does not embrace. Homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, they worship multiple different gods. It's a huge atheistic component to the nation of Israel. They were gathered in the first, first time they were gathered is an unbelief. They will be gathered in full belief when Jesus comes back to set up his millennial kingdom. That's Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant that he'll establish with Israel. Now, I hear this. Many prophecy enthusiasts have made predictions of when Jesus will return. They've all been wrong up to this point, okay? Listen to this. In 1836, John Wesley, now he started the Methodist Church. From that came the Wesleyan movement, okay? In 1836, he predicted that Jesus would come back. He didn't. William Miller of the Millerites, from which Ellen G. White and the Seventh-day Adventists sprung from, said that, that Jesus would come back in 1844. He didn't. Chaz, Taz, Charles Taz Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witness, said it would be 1874. Joseph Smith said it would be 1891. Jehovah's Witnesses make another prediction in 1914. That didn't happen. And then in 1988, that's my generation, okay? That's, that's my time. And actually, this book was written in, in the early 70s, like 1972, The Late Great Planet Earth. Hal Lindsey makes a prediction, and it's based upon the fig tree. And the fig tree, and he decides one, a nation is about 40 years, a generation is about 40 years. And this generation shall not pass until all these will be fulfilled. So he goes 1948 plus 40 is 1988. So then he makes a prediction that Jesus will come in 1988. He was wrong. He was wrong. Ed Dobson from Calvary Bible Church in Grand Rapids. He's dead now, but he's a tremendous Bible teacher. He had a prediction. Harold Camping, not so good a Bible teacher. He had, a, he had, a, he had several, a couple predictions that didn't come about. Jerry Falwell. He made predictions. Jean Dixon, the astrologer, she was wrong. You can always count on that one. Uh, even, now, listen to this. Even our beloved Chuck Smith in 1981 made a prediction, and he had to backtrack from that. I mean, even, it, it can happen. You can get caught up in this. You can, get, you can get rapture fever and get really caught up in this. Many of the later predictors looked at the parable of the fig tree as proof that Jesus would return at a specific time. They were all wrong. Now, there's a danger. We simply don't know when Jesus will return. We will know the signs. Now, hey, let me say this loud and clear, okay? We will know the signs, but not the exact time, okay? So Jesus tells us how we can know for sure 
that he is really close. Now, when I say he's coming back really close, this is speaking of the second coming. Not the rapture, the second coming. When you see all these things, know that is at that is near at the doors. Now, what things is he talking about? The things that he's been talking about regarding the tribulation period. The rider on the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the chlorophyll colored horse. When you start when you see these things, you know he's coming back. You know, you unequivocally know he's coming back at, a, at, at a, that specific time. The generation living in the tribulation can know that they know this is it. Jesus is coming. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things that he had been talking about up to this point comes to fruition. Now, I want to give some clarification here. The tribulation is all about the Jews. Remember, it's that 70th week of Daniel. That last seven years is all about the Jews. It's not about the church. It's, not about, it, it's about the Jewish people coming to believe in the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. It's not about the church. I believe the church is taken in the rapture before the tribulation starts. What this is not addressing, these verses are not addressing the rapture of the church. Because the rapture must occur before the second coming. Does everybody understand that? Everybody got to, uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just give me a grunt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, the, the rapture will occur before the second coming. Now, it can occur right before the tribulation starts, or there could be a time frame before that. We do not know. We do not know. But we do know that we're entering into that phase, and very strongly, where the rapture of the church seems very imminent very imminent with the things that we're seeing. So the rapture can occur at any time. The second coming and the rapture are similar, but they're not the same. Now, Robert Dean in his work has these pictures of similar and not the same. He has a car and then he has a truck. They're similar, but not the same. He has a bush and then he has a tree, similar, but not the same. He has a jet fighter and a cargo plane, similar, but not the same. Okay, now a lot of people conflate these events, the rapture and the second coming. But I have a slide here that shows you the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Now, the rapture occurs, I believe, before the tribulation. The second coming occurs after the tribulation. The rapture occurs, Christ comes for his saints. This is very different than coming with his saints to earth. The rapture, Christ takes the saints to heaven. At the second coming, he comes back to the earth and he takes over earth. Now, remember, he is, the, he is the bridegroom. We are the bride. The bride goes where the bridegroom comes. So he comes to earth, establishes kingdom. We are going to join him in that kingdom as the bride of Christ. Christ returns in the clouds. Christ returns to the earth. He comes back in the clouds, but he goes to heaven here. He goes to earth here. Christ is not seen in the rapture. But folks, every eye will see Jesus come back. There will be no mistaking. This will not be a double super secret. You can say this is a secret, but this is not a secret. And it is blessed. It is a blessed hope of the church. It's the great day of his wrath when he comes back at the second coming. These are two very different events. Easy to conflate in Scripture. Please keep them separate. The believers are to look forward to the rapture. We don't look forward to the second coming. We're coming during the second coming. The believers in Messiah will come with Jesus. 
will be in the millennial reign of Christ. And guess what? We get glorified bodies. Isn't that just hip, hip, hooray? And with these glorified bodies, think about this. You will have expanded intellect. Now you will understand. Remember, now we see but a poor reflection in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part while I'm here. Then I shall know fully as I am fully known. You're going to understand things that you had no idea that you could understand when you get into the eternal state. We're going to be judging angels. I can only say, can you imagine? Can you imagine the future for you? When Israel became a nation, the fig tree sign appeared. All eyes and all ears should be open when that event happened. Now, there's something called the doomsday clock. It's going to come up here. Now, they call this the doomsday clock. And they say, oh, climate change, nuclear war, chemical war, biological war. Oh, we're almost to midnight. And humanity's going to, this is, a, this is an atomic bomb here. We're going to kill ourselves and that sort of thing. Look, you know what I call this? I call this the heads up clock. The heads up, heads up. The king is coming. When Jews became a nation, click, one more, the king is coming. As you see these signs occurring right before your eyes, as we're going towards, we're streaking. We're not going, this is not, I don't know, what was it, Carol Burnett's show where that guy would just walk like this? <laughs> we're not doing that. It ain't that kind of walk. It's boom, race walking towards this thing. We're sprinting towards this. A one world government, a one world religion, a one world economic system. Folks, your finances are changing coming down the pike. This isn't about that. I mean, I, I'm getting off track, but anyway. It's changing right before your eyes. Realize that. Verse 35, Jesus' words are eternal. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. Now, let that indelibly be imprinted on you. It will. There will be global warming one day. Peter says it's all going to melt. All the elements will melt right before your eyes. But my words will by no means pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, folks. It's a done deal. Now, what you need to know is that the vast majority of the church does not believe in the rapture. They're orthodox. You must believe in the second coming of Christ. You don't have to believe in a rapture to be orthodox. We happen to believe in a rapture because I believe the Bible teaches a rapture. But the majority of the church is amillennial. The prefix a means no or without. No millennial reign. Six times he mentions the millennium in the book of Revelation. And six times they allegorize it, storytell it, and, and they just don't believe it what is actually written. Postmillennialism, which is making a resurgence now, postmillennialism simply believes that the earth and the world is getting better and better and better to usher in the kingdom of God. I don't know what they're watching. I don't know what Kool-Aid they've drunk, but it is not getting better and better, as you know. In the postmillennial view has a real problem with what Jesus said. Heaven and earth will pass away. These folks believe this world is, is all that will be. Jesus disagrees with this, and so does Scripture. The eternal state follows the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand-year millennial reign isn't it. That's to fulfill the seventh week, the, the last, the, the 70th week, the last seven years of the years that were promised to the Jewish people. But if you look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4, it'll be worth you going there.
Again, John is on the island of Patmos. He has given the apocalypso, the unveiling of what's happening in the future. And he gets to the end of this whole thing. It talks about a new earth and a new heaven. And in chapter 21, verse 1, it says this. John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That word new is kainos. Kainos. It's qualitatively new. Not renewed, not redone, qualitatively new. Remember, 2 Peter says, all the elements will melt with fervent heat. This whole thing is going to be redone. Now, how do I know it's going to be all new? The first heaven and the first earth have passed away. That tells me it's going to be new. Also, there'll be no more sea. Well, the whole earth is going to change. You know, we are water-based. 60% of adults is water. 60%. When you're a baby, it's, it's 80 to 90% water. We are water-based. We're in a water-based planet. You won't need that when you get glorified bodies. No more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's where you're going to be living, folks. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. He will shiken with them. He will tabernacle with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What does that tell you? You're going to commune with the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God himself will be there. It'll be like the back to Genesis where they walk with God in the garden. They could commune with God in the garden. And in verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that going to be great? There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This whole thing has passed away. And I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to that. Passed away, the eternal state. Closing thoughts. You can tell that I shortened this, didn't you? Yeah. We are the only generation that qualifies for the second coming of Messiah. The Jews are in the land, the fig tree sign. Humanity now has the power from my generation. I was born in 1949, so nuclear weapons started in 1945 when they started dropping them on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Going forward, there's been a proliferation of nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, nothing before that. Humanity could not destroy themselves with bows and arrows and guns and that sort of thing. They could not, but now you can. So, and then Jesus said, if he did not return, mankind would destroy themselves. No flesh would be saved alive. No other generation could this apply to than to us. Than to us. You are living at a privileged time. You're living to see things that the Old Testament prophets the early church longed to see. See, we live with a little bit of trepidation as the changes come. They were looking forward to this time, the signs that Messiah was coming. So, what are you to do? Ladies and gentlemen, know that the time is short. I think you know that. Know that our Savior is coming. The question is, is He coming for you? That's the question. That's really what gets down to the bottom line. Is He coming for you? Are you the bride? 
Are you coming with him or are you going to experience the wrath of God at the second coming? Will you go in the rapture or will there be judgment for you at the end? Now, there's two questions that every human must answer. Number one question is, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? That's Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus goes up into Caesarea Philippi and he looks at this, this rock face and all these gods are carved into the mountainside. And he asks his disciples, who do men say the son of man is? And they, then they answer, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks straight at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And he looks at you today and anybody hearing this today, who do you say Jesus is? Is he a prophet? Is he a good guy? Is he your buddy? Or is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Who do you say Jesus is? And then Pilate, when, he, when, when they're beating Jesus, places him before the crowd. And he can find no fault in Jesus. And he says this question to the crowd, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That's really the the two seminal questions of, of everyone's life. How you answer these questions will determine your eternal destiny. Folks, salvation is so great and free. And the encouragement is believe and receive the gift. Believe and receive the gift. Now, I'm going to mention something here that might be a little controversial, unlike me, isn't it? I mean, just a little, little off. Uh, but think about this. I believe there's a difference between decisional regeneration and believing yielding regeneration. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes people will say, make a decision for Christ. And that's kind of a legitimate way to put it, but it's not actually what you're doing. Decisional regeneration, in decisional generation, oftentimes the person is looked at as having the capability on their own to make a decision about Christ. And I can tell you it is not on your own. It is God involved in this whole process. You are not doing this on your own. Believing and yielding regeneration, God does the work. I simply yield to him and believe in him. Now, Oswald Chambers has something to say about this. Watch what he says. Make a decision for Christ places the emphasis on something our Lord never trusted. And I put in parentheses, you. You. He never asked us to decide for him but to yield to him, to his authority, something very different. Now, make no mistake how this thing works. Make no mistake. The Father must draw, and he draws you to Christ. No one come, come, I'm speaking in tongues. Any interpreter? <laughs> no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 6, 44. The Spirit must convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 8. The Son must draw. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So the whole Godhead is involved in your salvation, pulling you. You don't want God. Remember, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good, it says in Romans chapter 3. There's none who seek after God. If anybody is seeking after God, it is God first seeking you. He is always the initiator in salvation. The human side is simply to believe and receive the gift to yield to God. And when I say yield to God, you yield your life to him, your will, your way, your wants, and your desires. He is, he is your Lord. He's just not a little tag that you put on. I got saved by Jesus and now I, can, now I got my stamp of approval and I'm okay. No, you are in a different kingdom. You are serving a different king. You're going in a different direction. 
The human side is believe, believing regeneration. The number one criteria for salvation that you see in scripture is simply to believe. 97 times or so in the book of John. Acts 16, Acts 16, 31 says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you know what that believe is. It's not just mental assent. It is not just saying that I believe Jesus died on the cross and that he was buried and rose again. It is putting your trust in him, committing yourself to him, realizing that I'm a sinner in need of a savior and that he died and took all of my sins, paid the sin debt that I could not pay. And when I believe that he did it for me personally, personally, then you're saved. Then you're saved. Salvation is very easy. It's the second phase of salvation that's not so easy. Sanctification, where you work in concert with the Holy Spirit to change your direction and change your life. God gives you the ability to do this, folks. He gives you the ability to believe. You're still breathing. You still have time. Believe and receive the gift now. Time is literally running out. Time is literally running out. There's an urgency today. Can you sense it? Your life will end. And in the end, what you do with Jesus will mean everything. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Will you believe him or you reject him? If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I just told you how to become a Christian. Believe and receive the gift of salvation. Do it right in your seat. You can do it right now. Anybody in earshot, anybody who sees this, just say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I place my trust in you as my sin bearer. I receive the gift of salvation that you have offered to me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me. You say that, you've been born again of the Spirit. Born again. The last invitation in Scripture is Revelation twenty-two seventeen. Watch what he says. Watch the tug of God. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. That's the message that goes out to humanity. Come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever, whoever, pass, every and all, who desires to let him take of the water of life freely. Now for those who will believe and receive the gift, 1 Peter 2.21 is for you. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Folks, you were saved to follow the master. Not wave at him and cheer for him, to follow the master. And I tell you, you can almost hear his footsteps. I got a little, little footprint here in the sand, okay? Jesus is close. The time is short, and you can almost hear his footsteps. I mean, Fruchtenbaum says you can almost hear the footsteps of Messiah. I am telling you, he is close. He is close. Messiah is coming. And with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. I know this has been somewhat rushed today. That's okay, Lord. You can do great things with tiny efforts. So, Lord, I ask that you would speak to each one of our hearts. I pray that people will make an all-out commitment to you that have really, truly been born again of the Spirit, not walk in this halfway in and out phase of Christianity, but be all in with you. For those who are not born again of the Spirit, I pray today would be the day that they say yes to Jesus Christ and receive the gift of salvation. 
Lord, when we leave, leave here today, we're going out into a world that is contrary to you. And may we represent you with excellence while we are here. We know you're coming soon. We know that you're coming soon. And I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ while I'm here. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.